If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We typically have pew Bibles out. I didn't make it out this morning. I don't know how they get there, but it didn't happen today. I think they crawl out on Saturdays, but not this day. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We'll go ahead and jump in this morning. So if you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 16. This is the word of God. After this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went away and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Amen. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You guys can be seated. Our big idea this morning, and I'm actually stealing this from John Piper. So John Piper axiom, I tried to improve upon it, I just, I could not. I'm the lesser of the Pastor Johns. Our big idea this morning, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Christians, I want to add the word should, Christians should care about all suffering and especially eternal suffering. We have three points this morning corresponded three scenes, we'll see that Jesus cares about temporary suffering. Jesus cares especially about eternal suffering. And the Jewish leaders care about neither. Again, Jesus cares about temporary suffering. Jesus cares especially about eternal suffering. The Jewish leaders care about neither. They are concerned with their understanding and enforcement of the Sabbath command. Okay, but first, Jesus cares about temporary suffering. When I say temporary, I mean the suffering that happens on this side of death and judgment. Because of the sin, because of sin and the curse, all people suffer on earth and will die and will then be judged. That judgment will forever end the suffering of some and increase it for others. Again, the judgment will forever end the suffering of some, that is for those who are in Christ, it will increase the suffering for others. 
But until that day, Christians ought to care about all suffering. We'll see that Jesus cares about both. We begin with Jesus cares about temporary suffering there in verse 1. We see it begins after this. Now for context, you maybe you've noticed as we've gone through the book of John, the gospel begins with a series of days. From that, we move to a series of after this that's linking the narrative together. The after this here means more specifically after Jesus is in Galilee and he heals the royal official's son. That was Jesus' second sign, second of seven in the first half of the book that are intended to reveal his identity to us. Okay, so I think as we're reading this narrative, we need to keep two things in mind. The first one, again, is that this is a sign of Jesus's that's intended to reveal his identity as the Christ that we might believe. Okay, in Jesus' first sign, he turned water into wine. In his second sign, he stopped death. He kept the wedding going and stopped the funeral. The first two signs are really a picture of heaven, right? The forever wedding, the never funeral. In the third sign, Jesus, like the previous two, is going to reveal that he is God. More specifically, because he's working on the Sabbath, he's God the Son. We'll see that as we get further into chapter 5, next time we're in the book of John. So that's the first thing we need to keep in mind, that this is the third sign of seven. It's showing us that Jesus is the God-man, the Messiah. I think the other thing we keep in mind, okay, John says after this, if you look at the text, verse 1, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I think the other thing we want to keep in mind is Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem in John chapter 2. It'll help us understand the climate of his return and reception. Okay, the last time Jesus is in the temple, he's not singing there is joy in the house of the Lord, right? He is brandished a whip, he's cleaning it or cleansing it out, cursing it even. It's because he's found that the house of the Lord has been turned into a house of business. Think about it. Jesus is kind of stirring, creating the scene. He's flipping things over. He's driving people out. Then he's making comments about destroying this temple and rebuilding it. The Jewish leaders probably have pictures of Jesus up, warning that he's like a security threat. This guy is talking about destroying the temple. Worst of all, his disciples are growing, and now he's back. So verse 1 puts Jesus back in Jerusalem after his second sign. Now John tells us it's for a festival. He doesn't say which one, which is interesting for the book of John. John's very clear about Jesus' trips to Jerusalem, what festivals he's there for. It's not relevant for this scene. What's important is what we see in verse 9, that it's the Sabbath. Okay, but verse 2 continues. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which had five colonnades. So John's given us a little bit of details, context again. There's on the north side of the city, there is a little entrance that the sheep were brought through and two to be slaughtered. It's not incredibly important, except for John giving us details, historicity. Maybe John wants us to see the lamb of the world coming through the sheep gate. Right, one day he will go to be slaughtered on behalf of the sins of the world. Presumably Jesus right now is on his way to the temple. We'll see him there below, but here he stops at this pool. Now, it's really hot in Memphis right now. Maybe you're one of the few blessed who have access to a pool, okay? This is not one of those pools. It's not a swimming pool. There's no high dive or splash pad. This is more like Jesus's trip through Samaria. It's an unusual stop. People are not eager to be here because of the very few who are. 
Verse 3. Within these, that is these five colonnades at these pools, it was, it's actually two pools, lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Okay, why are disabled people congregating by this pool? Like when you think about that, and I don't mean this as a joke, okay? Sometimes people laugh and I'm not joking. A pool seems like the last place, the worst place for the blind and the paralyzed to be at. Why are they there? Well, they believed that God would sometimes heal at the water. They believed that God through an angel would stir the water and the first one who made it in would be healed. It's actually pretty common custom or practice even in pagan uh, religions, healing pools you would have found in every city in the ancient Near East. The Jews too believed that they could maybe be healed at a pool. But now remember, there's a Jewish festival going on. Every able-bodied Jew would have been required to go and presumably to be at the temple. But these people are here. They probably couldn't make their temple, make their way to the temple, and even if they could, they think their best chance at being made whole is here at the pool. All right, little do they know, of course, that Jesus, the true temple, is taking the presence of God to them. The place of healing and holiness is not in a pool, but in the person of Christ. And Jesus takes notice of one man in particular. Look at verse 5. One man was there who had been disabled for 30 Eight years. Now we'll see down in verse 7, he can't make it into the water. It seems like he can crawl, but he really needs someone to pick him up and take him. That means he's likely either lame, really weak, or more likely he's probably a paralytic and has been for 38 years. This is longer than the life expectancy at the time. Okay, so think about this man. He can't work. He is completely reliant on the generosity of others. I'm sure he goes without regular baths or change of clothing. As a paralytic, he would have struggled to control his own bladder and bowels. There is nothing about this man's appearance that is lovely. The average person would have found him repulsive. Not just him, but this entire scene there at the pool to us would appear pathetic. It's a strange feeling Right, to feel compassion, which is really a movement towards someone in pity, and at the same time to be repulsed, which is a movement away. Maybe you've experienced this before. I was in Ethiopia once, and we drove by. We were in a bus. We were driving by a dump that children, loads of children were either living in or just mining through, presumably trying to find things to sell or perhaps even to eat. On the one hand, it broke my heart. It was absolutely devastating. The smell was also so repugnant that I was beginning to gag. I was physically gagging. It smelled so bad. On the one hand, being moved in pity. At the other hand, being repulsed, wanting to get away. Presumably, this pool was similar, right? The average person doesn't desire to be there because for them, there's nothing desirable there. There's people begging. It stinks. There's sickness. The average person stands nothing to gain there, so they don't go there. Jesus, of course, is different. Cyril of Antioch comments, he runs, you see, to the one who is lying down. And he has compassion on the one who is sick and helpless. Right, the word became flesh and has dwelt among us. 
He has come to the sick and the poor, the sinners, the perverse. Notice Jesus goes to Jerusalem, but he doesn't go to a palace. He goes to the paralyzed. Now you can imagine this man who has been disabled for 38 years is desperate. There is nothing he wants more than to be able to walk under the power of his own two legs. He's desperate. He's probably equally hopeless. It's been 38 years Day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, his prayers, it seems, have gone unanswered. Treatments have yielded nothing. Now he just lies there waiting, probably less for a miracle and more to die. And Jesus takes notice of him. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and realized he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Now, notice the difference. Again, this passage is linked to the one that came before it. Notice the difference between this episode and then what we see in John chapter 4. There the royal official goes to Christ. He asks in faith to heal his son. Here Jesus is the one that notices. Jesus takes initiative. Jesus seeks him out. Jesus engages him with a question. Jesus is even going to heal him apart from any faith. But Jesus notices and he asks him a question. How often do you think people talked to this man? Took interest in this man? Cared about this man? Asked about his story, about his disability even? Asked about his desires? Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we can dignify those who are in need, like the homeless or the disabled is by speaking to them. Of course, you need to assess your own tolerance for risk and act in wisdom and by faith, but ignoring suffering altogether is not an option for Christians. Jesus dignifies him. He's not just what he is, but what he could be, and asks him a question. Doesn't ignore him, doesn't treat him as though he's invisible. Instead, he invites him in with a question. Do you want to get well? Okay, now think about this question. Jesus is asking him, the 38-year paralyzed man at a healing pool, if he wants to get better. Okay, he's not there working on tan. If it seems like an obvious question, it's because it is. Right? All questions are equally obvious to God. He doesn't ask to learn Rather, Jesus is stirring up desire in him to be made well. With the question, Jesus is putting his finger right where it hurts, right where he needs, right where he's given up. Do you want to be made well? Now the man responds, verse 7, he says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And even then, right, while I'm coming down, someone goes down ahead of me. Notice Jesus asks him, do you want to be made well? And he responds with a yes, but in a way that's constrained to what he can see. The only thing he thinks that can make him well at this point is this pool. Do you want to be better? Well, sure, but I can't make it into the water. Brothers and sisters, how often do we think God's power, his goodness, his plan are constrained to what we can see or do? 
And here's the problem as the man conceives it. He says, verse 7, I have no one. More literally, I, don't, I have no man. Right? Others probably had money to hire a servant to take them into the water when it was stirred. Others probably had a loyal spouse or sibling. Some had a friend who would carry them into the water. You might think about the paralytic in Mark chapter 2. He had four friends who were willing to rip a hole in a roof to lower their friend in faith to Christ. This man says, I have no one. I've had no one for a long time. I have no family. I have no friends. I have no servants. I have no health. I have no hope. Healing waters are beyond my reach. I have no man to help me. Of course, little does he know the only man who can actually help him. The wellspring of life is standing before him, asking him if he wants to be made well. Jesus responds to him in verse 8. Get up. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. I mean, think about it. This man has likely not gotten up or carried anything in years, if not decades. And with the word, Jesus issues a command and offers healing. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Verse 9, instantly the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. How does Jesus heal him? What does it tell us about Christ? Think about it. Jesus doesn't need to pray. Why? He's God. Jesus doesn't need to carry him down into the pool. Why? Because he's God. Jesus doesn't even need this man to have faith. Why? Because he's God. His power is not limited to what we can see like the water. It's not even handicapped by our unwillingness. Jesus speaks and it is done because he is God. The same word that stopped death in Capernaum is the same word that gave spiritual life in Smyrna. It's the same word that turned the water into wine in Cana. It is the same word that created all things. John chapter 1 verse 3. Who is Jesus? He is the eternal word of the Father. By him all things were created and by his word all things are held together. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. When the word of God speaks a word of promise, it comes with power. Why? He is God. The third sign, John is showing us the sun. I think John, again, through water imagery, is also showing us that Jesus is better. The wine of Jesus is better than the purification water of John chapter 2. The baptism of Christ is better than the baptism of, of John. The eternal life of Christ is better than Jacob's well, John 4. The healing of Christ is better than any pool has to offer, John chapter 5. Jesus' water actually cleanses us. It actually satisfies us. It actually heals. John is showing us as he has that Jesus is better. He is the better and eternal temple. He is the better and sure ladder to heaven. He is the better and more satisfying lamb. He is God, the Son, the Son of Man, the King of Israel, the one who heals both body and soul. What no person could do for this man in 38 years, Jesus does with a word. Get up and walk. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that God cares about your suffering? 
that he has spoken words of promise, that he has the power to deal with them. I wonder, is there any pain or problem in your life that you consider too difficult for God? Something maybe you even prayed about a long time ago, but have since given up on. I think we're reminded in this text that there is nothing too difficult for our God. And we're reminded He cares, even about the suffering that we experience now. God is not waiting for us to get to heaven to start doing good to us. God cares. He cares about the physically disabled. He cares about those who struggle with mental illness. He cares about the families who lost children in Uvalde. He cares about Ukrainians whose lives have been appended. He cares about Afghans whose country has been decimated by the Taliban and now an earthquake. He cares about the children who have been killed in mother's wombs. He cares about the homeless. He cares about those who are enslaved all over the world. He cares about children who go to bed hungry, even our own city. He cares about those who have to cower in their home because their parents or spouses are abusive. God cares about it all. That Christ cares especially about eternal suffering is not an excuse for us not to care about temporary suffering now. Christians ought to care about it all. Now part of the struggle, I think, is that we live in we live in a high-tech world. We live in a social media age. We are exposed to suffering in a way that people have not been in the past. Right? We know about so much more than people did 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago even. And the world wants you to often feel pressure to care about everything in the same way. That is overwhelming. Frankly, what the culture wants from you Absolute justice, absolute renewal can only come from God. I want you to notice one thing in the text, that Jesus, he's on his way to the temple. He's doing something quite normal for him. He saw many disabled. He healed one man. Brothers and sisters, I think rather than feeling as though you need to end all suffering tonight, which you cannot, you should make a more modest goal. Right? What suffering can you work toward relieving? Perhaps there's something going on around you. Maybe there's something that you're particularly passionate about, like fostering or education, ending sex trafficking or abortion, helping refugees or single mothers. Maybe you're gifted at something or simply available enough to do good. I'll add this also as a bit of a caveat because I think this can be so toxic. One of the best things that we can do to help one another as we each seek to do mercy ministry, that is as we each seek to mitigate and end suffering, temporary suffering here, one of the best things we can do is to pray for each other, to encourage one another, and to not discourage others because they're not involved in the ministry that I'm involved in. It's easy to think that because this person doesn't retweet my cause that they don't actually care about human suffering. Brothers and sisters, that is a lie from Satan. There is a lot of suffering, and God will give us opportunities, passions, gifting, callings even, to participate in helping in different arenas. Most fundamentally, we need to take heart in knowing that God sees it all, that he cares about it all, that he will one day right all wrongs. For those who are in Christ in particular, our suffering is temporary. 
the last pain you will feel will be the last breath you take. But this is not the case for all. This is why Jesus especially cares about eternal suffering. Okay, but first we come to the next point. The next scene really is that the Jewish leaders care about neither. Okay, the Jewish leaders care about neither. Their concerns are elsewhere. Jesus heals this man and then John inserts this note for us. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Okay, as you're reading this, like ominous music should start playing in your head. The narrative really takes a turn. Now, think about this, okay? You might even write this down. Jesus is not a dummy, okay? He could have just told the man to stand up and walk, but he doesn't. He tells him to stand up, to pick up his mat, and walk. Jesus knows it's the Sabbath. He knows the interpretation of the law at the time. He knows it's a crowded Jerusalem. People are there for a festival. It's as though Jesus throws a grenade into the temple. Verse 10 goes on, and so the Jews, that is the religious leaders, said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. Now, we don't have enough time to explore the Sabbath command. Lord willing, we'll do this next time as we get into further into John chapter 5. The fourth commandment of the Decalogue, it prohibited Israel from working on the Sabbath so that they would rest and worship. The law does not prohibit people from picking up their mats, okay? The elders' tradition of the time prohibited 38 different types of work on the Sabbath. One of them was carrying something from this, from one domain to another. Okay, so to be clear, the Old Covenant does not explicitly prohibit someone from carrying a mat on the Sabbath. Their interpretation of the law, or rather their addition to Scripture, did. Here's what's even more important, though. Okay, that will come up as we get later into John chapter 5. Notice what they're fixated on. Not that he's been healed after 38 years of paralysis and is walking. There's no rejoicing with him. There's no curiosity about what happened, no worship of God, no, how can we help you now that you're probably homeless and without work? Simply an accusation. These men were his religious leaders. I'm sure they would have noticed him in nearly 40 years that he sat and waited. I think we can be confident they never asked him how they could help, if they could carry him to the water, if they could intercede on his behalf. And all they care about now is that he's carrying a mat on the Sabbath. Brothers and sisters, something screwy is going on in your conception of holiness and goodness if you do not rejoice when suffering has ended, when, holiness, when wholeness has been restored. Now the man responds to them, verse 11, you'll see, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. They respond, who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? Again, their response is not, whoa, whoa, whoa. Somebody healed you? Somebody made you well? There's someone in Jerusalem that might be a prophet or maybe even the Christ? Their response isn't, might this be the time of Isaiah chapter 35? When the eyes of the blind will be opened, when the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, when the lame will leap like a deer, when the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, when water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. They should have been asking, could the one with living waters be amongst us now? 
is the visitation of God upon us now? Is the Christ here today? No, they're wondering, who is this man? Who is the leader of the Sabbath breaker so that we can accuse him too? Right, apparently the only thing worse than carrying your mat on the Sabbath is doing good and healing someone. Now to be clear about something, brothers and sisters, it is a good thing to care about holiness. More than that, holiness never stands in competition with wholeness. It is because God is holy that he can bring healing to the world one day. It is because he is incorruptible that he can end the curse. It is because he is righteous that he can deal with our sin problem. The religious leader's problem is not that they care about holiness too, not, too much. It's that they don't care about the things of God at all. If they were really fixated on God's law and his character, they would care about this man. Brothers and sisters, we never want to find ourselves in the position where we think we're really serious about the things of God, but we're really cold-hearted and self-righteous. Love of God should always lead to love of neighbor. It is as we fix ourselves on his purity and his gospel and his law that it ought to actually increase compassion and pity on us as we see those who are stuck in sin and suffering. The relief of pain should always lead to joy for those who are indwelt by the Spirit. Okay, in contrast, Jesus cares about human suffering. He cares about all suffering. He cares especially. He cares especially about eternal suffering. We come to our last consideration. Jesus cares especially about eternal suffering. After this, verse 14 Jesus found him, that is the man he healed, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Jesus begins by pointing to the evidence of God's grace and power and goodness in this man's life. See, you are well. For the first time in 38 years, you are walking. Okay, you wanted healing and you got it. Well, mostly. Jesus goes on, do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. One commentator notes that we really see grace and truth. You'll recall from the prologue, Jesus is full of grace and truth. We see it playing out here in his ministry. Grace in that Jesus gives this man what he does not deserve. Truth, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Good ministry brings both. Now why is Jesus giving this man this warning? We don't know for certain, but it seems like, I think, I'm inclined to think that this man's physical suffering was a result of his sin. Now, to be clear, all suffering is not the direct consequence or result of someone's sin in a kind of tit-for-tat manner. Sometimes it's really explicit and clear, right? You are embezzling at work and you get fired. You go to prison. It's hard to get a job in the future, okay? That is a consequence of sin. God, too, can also, in his justice, punish us or discipline his children by doing something like this. Again, to be clear, not all, not all our suffering is a direct result of our sin, even though all suffering is a result of sin, okay, from the fall. We'll actually see this in John chapter 9 as Jesus is going to heal a blind man. He answers the disciples who ask, 
this man, he's blind, is because of his sin or his parents. Jesus severs that idea in their minds. says, no, 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 it's not because of this man's sin. Sometimes we do suffer because of our sin. The same God who in freedom can heal a man by grace can also punish or discipline a man in justice. Jesus, in one sense, yes, is calling him to a kind of general faith and repentance, but I think also is getting at something more specific. We don't know what this man's sin is, but he would have known. He doesn't have any questions for Jesus. Jesus says, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Now, what could possibly be worse than 38 years of paralysis? 38 years of poverty. 38 years of pain, 38 years of loneliness, eternal hell. To be cast out of the loving and life-giving presence of God. I don't mean to diminish suffering right now by calling it temporary. It's a relative descriptive. 38 years is temporary compared to eternal suffering. Suffering that will go without end. John will tell us later in a different book, 1 John chapter 5, that there is sin that leads to death. Jesus is saying, if you don't repent, something worse will happen to you. 38 years of poverty, of pain, of loneliness will pale in comparison to what awaits. Every day he spent at the pool will feel like heaven compared to what is in store if he does not turn from his sins and trust in Christ. Okay, don't miss this. The man at this point is only half healed. And it's the less important half. His body is made well, yes, but his soul, which will not end, is still sick. Okay, the body is important, yes. The soul even more so. Again, I'm not trying to diminish the fact that we are physical creatures, that we experience suffering here. Okay, a billion dollars is a lot of money. A trillion is even more. The body is important, yes, the soul even more so. We should care about all suffering, especially eternal. Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 18. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better, more important, it is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better. It is more important. It is better for you to enter eternal life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hellfire. Applying it to this situation, we might say it is better to crawl into heaven than to walk into hell. Brothers and sisters, non-Christian friend even who might be visiting, do not mistake God's goodness and grace towards, to us as indifference towards sin. Jesus cares about all suffering, about temporary suffering, especially eternal suffering. Now hear me, Jesus could have healed the man and not said anything else and Jesus would have done a good work. He still would have done a good thing, period. Okay? All the suffering that we work towards alleviating is a good work, period. It reflects the character of God that he cares, that he wants to mitigate suffering even here. I think we struggle to think about this because we tend to think in two speeds. Either what I'm doing is important or it's not. Okay, It matters or it doesn't. It's good or it's bad. 
Okay, caring about temporary suffering is good. It's important. God calls us to it. It's a fruit of our faith and repentance. In this sense, it's necessary. Caring about eternal things is even more important. Many people will care about temporary suffering here. Only the church can care about eternal suffering. Many people, non-Christians even, will champion the family, which is good. The church alone offers entrance into the family of God. Many will teach, which is good. Only the church can preach the good news of the gospel. Many will care about poverty, which is good. Only the church can address spiritual poverty and offer eternal riches. The first half of the text, it keeps us from saying that temporary physical suffering doesn't matter. It does. The second half reminds us that there's also something more important. Eternal suffering for some, eternal bliss for others. The church alone has the remedy for this. Because sin is the cause of all suffering. Both temporary and eternal. Augustine the great African bishop put it this way, speaking of this text. He says, it is more important that he heal the sins of souls than that he heal the ills of bodies which were going to die. Why? It's lengthy, but he's worth quoting here. This is Augustine again. You see, the true health of bodies which we are expecting of the Lord will come at the end in the resurrection of the dead. What comes to life then will not die. What is healed then will not get sick. What is filled then will not get hungry or thirsty. What is made new then will not grow old. Now, though, notice the deeds of our Lord Jesus Christ. The eyes of the blind that were opened have been closed in death. The limbs of the paralyzed that were steadied have fallen apart in death. Whatever was healed in mortal limbs of this world of time has ended up as nothing. But the soul which is believed has won passage into eternal life. Don't miss this and don't confuse what I'm saying. That Jesus heals the man's body is a good thing. But if this man lived to old age, he would have found himself once again with a body that did not work. Once again, he would have struggled to walk, struggled to work, struggled to carry his mat. Once again, he would have struggled to control his bladder. The older he got, the more he would have suffered the closer he would have gotten to a judgment that will forever fix his state, either ending suffering or increasing it. It is as though Jesus is telling him, you are well now. You are healed mostly. Stop sinning before something worse happens to you. That may sound harsh to us, but Jesus' call to repentance is merciful. Jesus is adding mercy to mercy. Could you imagine going to a doctor and getting scans done and them not telling you the cancer that they see because they think it will offend you? And they deal with something else, let me deal with this toothache. Okay, Jesus does a good thing, a very good thing, a foretaste of a final thing, and then turns to something even more important. Jesus is adding mercy to mercy. He could have said nothing and gone his way, but he doesn't. Why? Because he cares about suffering both temporary and eternal. Jesus, God the Son, became a man to end our suffering. If you're visiting us this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we believe. 
that God became a man to live on our behalf. That he lived perfectly on behalf. That the something worse that he warned this man about, he himself took on the cross. He endured the full measure of God's wrath for his people. That as he was punished for us, he actually died and he rose from the dead three days later. He now offers us forgiveness of sins and life eternal with him. If that's not something you've come to believe in, we would encourage you to put your trust in Christ this very morning. For those who are in Christ, one day all suffering will end. Sin and the curse will pass. Death will be no more. We will experience nothing but the fullness of life in the presence of God. We will be happy and whole because we will be made perfectly holy. Brothers and sisters, do not hog the remedy on your way to heaven. Again, it is a good thing to care about suffering, about temporary suffering. We should especially care about eternal suffering. The church alone, us as a people, we've been called, equipped, and sent with a message that deals fundamentally with both. And I think Jesus models for us one of the best ways to do both. He heals the body and then helps the soul. I would encourage you, seek to alleviate temporary suffering, work toward human flourishing, and share the gospel. Especially share the gospel. Life is short, short, and eternity is long. I suspect that church cultures swing like a pendulum. We probably look at our parents' and grandparents' generations and think that they only cared about missions and evangelism and took no concern for social issues. They probably look at us and think that we elevate the social to the neglect of the spiritual, and they're probably right. Brothers and sisters, we want to do both. We want to especially care about eternal suffering. It is a task that we have been given as Christians. We, like Christ, should care about temporary suffering, especially eternal suffering. Jesus heals the body. He calls them to holiness. And how does this man respond? This is kind of the perennial question of the book of John as Jesus reveals himself and the Father. How do people respond to his signs? Verse 15, the man went away and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Again, the signs in John are intended to reveal Jesus' identity and provoke a response in us, that response being faith. Now, the text doesn't tell us how this man responds. I think we're to read it negatively. In fact, I think we're to read this entire scene in parallel to, in contrast to John chapter 9. Now, if you're familiar with 9, John chapter 9, there Jesus also finds a man at a pool who has been disabled for a long time. He's been blind since birth. Jesus there, too, takes the initiative to speak to him. Jesus there, too, heals the man on the Sabbath. That man is also questioned by the Jews. That man also initially doesn't know Jesus' name. Jesus finds that man again. Jesus also invites him to faith. Now we see with that man that he responds in worship and faith. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Rather than going to the Pharisees, the Pharisees actually kick that man out. This man seems to do almost the opposite, okay? He's healed. He doesn't even have for Christ's name. He then defends himself before the Pharisees, okay? Almost, almost a shadow of what Eve, Adam says, the woman that you gave me, the man who healed me, he told me to pick up my mat. Jesus calls him to repentance. We see no response. Rather than being kicked out, he goes out of his way to find the Jews to tell them the name of his healer. 
D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, says that this man is either daft or dumb or malicious. Like he's either completely oblivious to what's been going on in Jerusalem and the way that people feel about Jesus or he has actual ill intent. He's probably somewhere in between. It is as though we've seen and continue to see and read in the book of John. Okay? The son was in the world. The world was created through him and the world did not recognize him. What was his name? I don't know. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. We see this in verse 16. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Rather than responding in repentance because he had been healed by Christ, rather than responding in faith, the religious leaders turn to persecute Christ. They go from kind of being uneasy about him in John chapter 2 to wanting to kill him soon. We'll see in just a few verses. From not recognizing to not receiving to outright rejecting the Christ. And so begins in the book of John a systematic plan to kill Jesus. All because he healed a man on the Sabbath. He alleviated human suffering. He did good and others now are incest. We see the sign is intended to incite repentance. Instead, it brings about rage. It shows that what's more unhealthy and twisted than our bodies is our hearts. Now, who knows, maybe this man, either that day or at the end of his life, maybe he came to receive Jesus as the Christ. Right? The healing of his body never quite brought him what he he thought it would. The effects of sin continue to ravage in his heart and his body. Maybe, just maybe, he turned to Jesus. If so, he would have been clothed in his righteousness, then and forever. Swallowed up in immortality forever. We don't know. What we do know is that those who receive Christ, who believe in his name, are given the right to become children of God. That's us. We do know that we have been called to care about suffering, especially eternal suffering. We know that for the children of God, a day will come where we will suffer no more. I pray that until that day, we will care for all suffering and especially eternal suffering. Let's pray.